today on Ag News Daily. We are going to do our outright best to make sure that we leave a positive impression on you and that we do remember you when you do come through. Well, happy Friday, listeners. July 7th, 2023. Delaney and Tanner here back on schedule, right on time, getting this episode out early in the day. That's right, Tanner. And I saw on Facebook yesterday that you just hit your four-year mark podcasting with Farm for Profit. So congratulations. We did. Thank you. Yes, uh, it is certainly been a ride and I'll be excited to see what year five brings. But it was a bunch of fun. We did a couple of unique episodes this week to celebrate and see if our listeners liked them. So yeah, go check them out. We appreciate it. But yes, it's uh, how long has Ag News Daily been running, Delaney? Too long. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, how <laughs> well, we started in 2017, so March of 2017. Holy smokes! A long time. We missed. We missed our sixth year. We got to remember that for next year. Lucky number seven. Okay, that's true. Well, let's get the weather out of the way. Strong storms still rolling through Texas and Oklahoma this morning. Severe thunderstorms were moving through the region. That brought up to softball-sized hail, unfortunately. We still have the strong winds that were predicted yesterday. The National Weather Service is reporting that heavy rainfall is expected to come in more storms. Another round is forecasted into tonight into Saturday morning. Damaging winds, heavy rain, again, are the primary hazards. There's very few instances of hail potentially coming through this storm, which is nice. Storms are also expected to kick off this evening in western and central Minnesota. Iowa's got small chances of rain throughout today. And tomorrow, damaging winds and locally heavy rainfall are probably unlikely during these systems here in the Midwest, but are still a potential Wind seems to be the biggest issue as they could gust up to 60 miles an hour. Well, Tanner, speaking of weather, this is a little bit more evergreen of a story, but still interesting nonetheless. DTN worked with um, their ag meteorologist to narrow down the four worst periods of drought that we've seen in the United States. And I think everybody can probably guess the number one drought story, Tanner, in the history of the U.S. Can you guess it? The Dust Bowl. Yes, absolutely. So the Dust Bowl came in at number one. No big surprise there. But here's the three other most uh, drought-ridden conditions that we've seen in the United States. So clocking in at number two was the drought that came in the Texas Southern Plain areas in the 1950s. Coming in at number three was the Midwestern drought of 88 and 89. Probably a lot of our listeners remember that one, Tanner. And the last drought, number four here, was the 2011-2012 drought. So the drought we're currently experiencing didn't make the top four list, but that's not to say that it won't, uh, as we're still seeing some really dry conditions across a lot of the Southern Plains. You know, we've started to see pockets of rainfall. We're really pushing to get into the El Nino weather pattern, which should give us wetter conditions, but as of yet, that has not given any reprieve to the drought, but we're certainly not in one of the worst four. It is. It kind of gives you a little bit of perspective, at least, as you look at that. Agco gave us a peek at four prototypes in an article uh, through AgWeb, starting off with the Symphony Vision Select Sprain uh, obligation. Agco will be introducing this over the next two years. Their goal is to intelligently apply or spot spray high-rate herbicide only when and where needed. 
They've also unveiled their autonomous grain cart that's looking to provide up to 33% increase in harvest efficiency. This grain cart will be uh, developed and in limited production in 2025. They're looking to uh, obviously have this cart talk with combines to make sure that efficiency comes about. There's also a demonstration of the prototype Fent E100. The Agco is showing progression towards selling a battery-powered electric tractor by 2030 up to 150 horse. Battery electric powered is part of Agco's three-pronged approach to alternative fuels. And what I thought was the most interesting is an autonomous baler. You know, we've seen the autonomous grain carts. Uh, we've seen self-propelled balers. But Fint is engineering a prototype of a fully autonomous tractor and round baler setup. They're starting off with testing in 2025 swath detection and auto guidance. This is where the baler pickup position would automatically adjust to make sure your bale stays full and the intake stays full based on the swath location and size. Then they look to use LIDAR sensors on the tractor cab to detect where the swath is, as well as watch out for obstacles as you go through the field. So we'll see, hopefully during field demonstrations at Farm Progress in the future, uh, but it'd be kind of interesting to see where this goes. The prototype right now is currently running at three miles per hour, which is not necessarily a benefit for speed, but obviously if you don't have an operator right now, so they're looking to up that pace. So quite interesting, a couple of releases from Agco. Well, Tanner, we are seeing some continued port issues for Ukrainian grain trying to get through Romanian ports. As we know, a lot of countries surrounding Ukraine have not been too keen to allow extra grain into their company into their countries through their shipping routes. And with no new ships registered under the deal since June 26th, Ukrainian officials said that transit via Romania's Black Sea port of Constadara is a critically important port. But so far, we haven't seen any ships get through that port since June 26th. As far as, you know, why, of course, that's happening. I mean, I think you can read between the lines. Romania has said that they haven't really preferred to see ships come through that area, but no official word has been given by Romanian sea and port export officials as of yet as to why no new ships have been registered or coming through that area. But uh, Ukrainian officials said that they're working with Romania to try and figure out what's going on there. But all in all, uh, we're still trying to see ships go through the Black Sea port. And Tanner, I think we're coming up on the end, I, I, this feels like a broken record, but I think we're coming up again on the eve of the end of this round of the Grain Corridor Initiative deal. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that looks like as we know it expires here coming up in about two weeks. Hopefully I'll have a little bit of updates for us on Russia and Ukraine uh, after our next news story. So as I dive in, the Cherokee Locker so Cherokee, Iowa, up close to where I grew up, uh, was one of the benefits of the pandemic. So not many great things came out of COVID-19, but this is one. There is an expansion and a brand new locker in Cherokee. In 2021, Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law House File 857, the Butchery Innovation and Revitalization Fund. This program was funded by the CARES Act and is now 
being used to help expand the Iowa locker industry. The Iowa Department of Ag and Land Stewardship provided $4 million in grants, and this small town locker was one of the recipients. The Cherokee Locker is a new facility that opened early in 2023. This ownership of the locker is local. Three-fourths of the owners are farmers within the area, and a majority of them are beef producers. More than 65 investors own 83 shares within the company. The investment has several components, including preference to get animals harvested on a timely schedule, profitability, if there is that opportunity to share and they get to sit on the board of directors for the locker. Besides the funds from the investors, state and federal grants were received to build this business. And now livestock producers will have the ability to have quality harvesting services within their area. The new building Delaney is 8,000 square feet, has solar panels that provide enough electricity for the facility's needs. And many of the cooler space will be utilized for uh, timely service for its clients. So it's good to see how the program has been put to work. Dave Allen serves as the CEO of the locker and Katie Smith is the office manager. And they continue to look at expanding services, offering other products within their front store. And they even Delaney have a drive-through window if you want to pick up a steak for the weekend. I'm all for that, Tanner. Absolutely. I'd drive through and buy a steak. It's better than buying something at McDonald's. <laughs> I'd drive through to pick up about anything. If I meant I didn't have to go inside. <laughs> That's true. Well, I have another piece of legislation here that could impact agriculture in a positive way. Legislation was introduced just prior to the 4th of July here that would classify phosphate and potash as critical minerals. The vice president of government affairs with the Fertilizer Institute told Brownfield in a recent interview that it's a bipartisan piece of legislation that they feel will really be helpful in a movement to increase the supply of domestic fertilizer and should increase production of fertilizer and those minerals and also protect them in the future if we see things and supply chain issues such as COVID-19 again, or, you know, any sort of transportation issues. We talk about the water and lock and dam systems having impact on getting those vital minerals. But so far, Tanner, Michigan is one of the only states in the U.S. with a potash mine currently in development. And so this bill would also hopefully expand domestic production into other states and protect it as a very critical mineral for the U.S. But of course, agriculture will also very much benefit from that. Yeah, it sounds like they will. I've got just my ethanol headlines and a little bit of Russia-Ukraine news to wrap up my uh, information for today. Ethanol production rose to its six-month high while inventories declined, so it's good to see production up and demand up as well. Production of the biofuel rose to an average of 1.06 million barrels a day, up from 1.052. That's the highest level since December 29th. Ethanol inventories for the week fell, so they were dropped to 22.26 million, down from 22.979. This is the lowest mark, lowest mark of stock over the last three weeks. The U.S. is expected to send cluster munitions to Kiev for the first part of its new age, new aid package. These munitions are controversial because a cluster bomb is a canister that carries tens to, hundred, tens to hundreds of smaller bomblets known as sub-munitions. The canister breaks open at a prescribed height dependent upon the area of the intended target, and then those bomblets spread out over another area. 
controversial weapon because somewhere between 10 to 40% of the munitions fail, therefore later on could damage or harm those who pass by the area as they could be detonated. President Zelensky is scheduled to discuss the Black, the Black Sea grain deal with his Turkish counterpart in Istanbul on today. The UN brokered agreement, like we said earlier, expires July 17th. The western city of Lviv is now reporting at least 10 people killed and a dozen others injured. And the Ukrainian front lines are stating they have now pushed more than one kilometer outside of Bakhmut for establishing a new barrier. So a couple of headlines there to wrap up my news. Well, I think I am out of news as well, except for one quick agronomic headline here, as we've seen the first report of red crown rot reaching Illinois soybean fields, Tanner. Now, you may not be familiar with this disease because it hasn't been around since 1972 is when the disease was first identified in soybeans in southern Illinois called red crown rot. It can appear to be at a glance one of several other common Midwest soybeans or uh, you know, confused for other diseases, but this one in particular mimics the foliar appearance of sudden death syndrome and a few other diseases. So it's one of those diseases you have to look really closely for in your field. The Crop Protection Network, which is a collaboration between land-grant universities, public and private agronomists across the United States and Canada, says the foliar symptoms can be confused with other diseases as well, including the brown stem rot or southern stem canker. But so far, field surveys in 2020 and 2021 uh, confirmed that 14 counties had fields with red crown rot, although folks didn't know and weren't able to report it because they thought it was other diseases. But we do know now for 2023, we've seen some official cases coming in, Tanner, and there's not really any good control options, but farmers need to address disease through management and cultural practices, according to the Crop Protection Network. Applying a fungicide won't take care of the disease, unfortunately, in this instance, and crop rotation can also help out of soybeans and planting corn or another plant can help with um, reducing the disease-causing inoculum. So just something to keep an eye on if you are out in Illinois and may see something that looks like another disease. It may not be that. Right. That's good heads up for our listeners. But as we record here at the right time on Friday, where are markets going to open? <laughs> yes. As we head into the opening session Corn is starting the day lower following yesterday's short little rally that we saw, seeing some fronts move into the Midwest and uh, some moisture, but that's been disappointing to the markets. September corn is down three cents in the overnight. We'll open at 496. New crop corn down three and three quarters cents at 502 and three quarters. Soybeans are also trading lower this morning as soybean meal is also lower and bean oil pushing just slightly higher. But all in all, let's push the complex lower as the August contract is down eight and a quarter cent at 1440. New crop soybeans down seven and three quarters cents at 1331 and three quarters. In the hard red winter wheat pit down majorly here this morning as the September contract is shedding 17 and a half cents at 826 and a quarter. And livestock yesterday traded mixed on the day as we saw August live cattle shed 37 and a half cents at a buck 74.57. August feeder cattle down $2.42 and a half cents at 242.27. 
and August lean hogs down 32 and a half cents at 97, 12 and a half. Tanner, we're kicking it over to an interview you recorded with Colby Jones, the manager of Durban Farms, talking about peach production. Well, listeners, this will be a fun, different conversation for you as we're going to head down to Alabama. Our pleasure today talking to Colby Jones, who's part owner of Durban Farms Market, and we're going to learn all about what they have going on down there. Welcome to the podcast, Colby. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So first of all, where are you in Alabama? So we are actually in uh, Clanton, Alabama. So pretty much dead center of the state. I mean, we're between the two major metros of Birmingham and Montgomery here. We're off of exit 205. So right in between those interchanges where we're located at. Great. And let's start off by telling our listeners, what is Durban Farms Market? So Durban Farms Market, I mean, I would guess a lot of people consider us more of a tourism attraction. So the business itself has been at the location here off of our major I-65 interstate. It's been here at this location since 61. It opened up, in fact, the same year that the interstate actually started coming through the state. Um, The founder, Marvin Durbin, and his wife, Mary, they actually had a fruit market further down 31 when US 31 was the major highway, and they pushed it down this way when they knew this interstate was coming. And back when they were running everything, it was nothing but a fruit stand. I mean, it opened up in the summertime when peaches started and whenever peaches finished up, they shut down for the rest of the year. But when they were open here during those summers, I mean, it was up at 24 seven. They had a night watchman that was here because you always had trucks coming through Atlanta, working their way this way, coming out of Florida, coming from Michigan area. And they were hauling apples and peaches. So, I mean, you could be, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, having to have somebody here for that. But over the years, of course, we've diversified, changed a little bit. Our family actually purchased the business going back to 2004. And since then, obviously, we have a sandwich and ice cream shop here, homemade ice cream, more deli style sandwiches, where we incorporate a lot of our produce from outside in our market. We try to use as much as we can from out there inside our deli and our ice cream as well. So tourism for us is, I mean, it's our lifeline, but typically I would say our customer base here is usually, I mean, if you draw a straight line up I-65 going up towards your Michigan's, Wisconsin's and Ohio's, they typically stop here on their way to and free, like all the way down to our beautiful coast down there. Wow. That, that is fascinating. So the way I introduced you is as part owner, what are the other parts of the ownership look like? So my, I own the business with my sister. And so my dad and my mom, they were the ones that purchased the business originally. And then my dad, he actually was going through a few health scares a few years back. So it was kind of those things where we both have always grown up in agriculture. We've both grown up in the retail side of things. Both of us, we went to Auburn University and both got business degrees. Uh, mom was in marketing, hers in management. And even a lot of those courses that we took To us, it always seemed that like your consumer behavior courses and things like that. For us, it was what we always dealt with dealing with your big farmers markets from when we were little kids. I mean, our calculators were the top of a tomato box with a pen. So (laughs) dealing with that and dealing with the customers that we had always dealt with over the years for us, some of that was common knowledge. And of course, you're going to have that interchange now with analytical data and stuff like that. But us taking over, we definitely tried to progress in some areas as far as technology and some aspects, but just trying to go 
more in depth, I would say, and showing everybody just what it takes, not necessarily to operate a business like ours, but as far as agriculture in general, because for us, it seems that a lot of our customer base that does come from some of these areas, they just think that produce just shows up on the shelves. They don't know where it comes from and all the logistical things that go on to make that product get to that final place. So that's been the main core thing that we try to focus on. Yeah, and that is a, a huge mission to take off. And, and everybody has to work together to try and spread the actual story of what agriculture does. So as you look and market to tourists and these products that you have available, how much of that does your family grow? Uh, it's really, for us, it's about 100 acres, I would say, as far as peach-wise. Now, where we're centrally located at, before Chilton County here, which is the county that we're located in Alabama, before it was really a peach county, it was known for, I mean, tomatoes and apples and things like that. So even not now, we do have like your squash, your okra, zucchini, uh, peas. We're picking peas right now. We're, we've got a pea sheller here that that thing runs nonstop every single day. We're shelling 20 to 30 bushels, close to 300 or more pounds every single day. So a lot of your local produce is starting to come in, but predominantly for us, it's about 100 acres of peaches as well as uh, nectarines. And even within our peaches, we're growing 40 to 50 different varieties in that aspect. Wow. Yeah, so that definitely, I can see where you're putting your business degrees to work as far as making sure that everything runs smoothly. So as you went through COVID, I assume that that changed and modified the way your business operates, what did you learn during that time period? I guess with that, just being thankful for what you do have, not so much for what you don't. Um, and I think that was the thing for us, even with like in one side where our sandwich shop was at, I mean, you're having to shut that down. You're having to uh, kind of skirt lines and figure out what you can do and what you can get away with. Um, but then again, also be thankful for the tourism that you did have that were um, willing to come into our establishment as well as locals. And so for us, that was something we had to tap into a little bit more because I would say probably 85 to 90% of our actual uh, customer base is tourism. And so when you don't have the tourism, you've got to reach into your bloodline being local traffic. So that was us having to focus more in on that and trying to market more to those customers because where we're located I mean, you definitely are looking at a predominantly lower to middle class income where most of our tourism traffic is more of your middle to upper class. So when you're losing that, you're definitely having to change a lot of your strategies with uh, product buying as well as um, figuring out specifically how you need to place different products in different areas as well as pricing with different things like that. So again, COVID changed the game, I think, on a lot of places. If you even look now, to me, I think I see every Chick-fil-A that I pass by, they are definitely um, pushing a lot of money into more of their drive-through, more so than they are yeah. anything on the inside. So, I mean, everybody's adapting to what they were dealt during COVID, and a lot of it's been for the better in some aspects. Yeah, I would agree with you 100%. So as you analyze the data, like you said, there's a lot more of that available now than maybe when your parents bought the company. What is the tourist's favorite part of your business? Is it the ice cream? Is it the, the swag, the wearables? How's that look? Um, it's usually, of course, it is going to be, a, a I say, a mixture between our um, ice cream and peaches and produce. But, I mean, it's been so weird for me growing up from what we used to do in North Alabama 
when we did farm in the spring and the summer, and then we also had a pumpkin patch in the fall and a Christmas light show in the winter. And then, I mean, our downtime was usually like a January, February gap. And so dealing with that becoming here to where generations have been coming through here, even when I was a kid working here, I mean, of course, not on the payroll, but I mean, you're in the back, you're helping make boxes, uh-huh. you're packing peaches, you're moving stuff, you're the free labor. And that aspect, you got food and a roof over your head, so you can't complain too much. Um, but seeing people from when I was little, and then as I progressed over the years, seeing them still come through and having kids or becoming grandparents, and just like even my dad will tell you the same thing we're terrible at names, but when you come through here, we're going to do our outright best to make sure that we leave a positive impression on you and that we do remember you when you do come through. I mean, I had a gentleman that came um, probably a couple months ago and I hadn't seen him for a couple of years and he came through with his son and I was talking to him and he was mentioning the same thing like, man, you remember me? And I was like, yeah, I remember you when you came <laughs> through. Y'all were hauling cattle down south. And he was like, okay, well, that's another reason why we come is because y'all talk to us and things like that. So I think it's not only the quality produce that we put out that you can't get it anywhere else. It's also the quality um, service that we provide, trying to build that relationship. Right. And I think that's another thing that I try to stress when we do hire employees here and trying to get them to understand if you have a bad experience at a McDonald's, you can go right down the road and find another McDonald's. <laughs> so right. us here, if you have a bad experience here, I mean, a lot of times you've lost that customer. So trying to focus in on that and providing that quality product and ice cream and your produce and your peaches and everybody knows and loves, but making sure that we also focus on having that quality atmosphere that people come to expect in the South, especially. Right. No, that's, that's great. And, and as this being an ag podcast too, it wouldn't, wouldn't be whole without me talking about the weather. So as you guys yeah. have gone, gone into your growing season, how has the, the latest, maybe unique weather patterns affected your growing? Um, well, I mean, obviously we always have to deal with the cold weather in the off season. I mean, your spring, you always are going to have a little bit of a frost that always worries. I couldn't tell you the last year that we actually had above an 80% crop as far as peaches. I mean, you're typically looking at about a 60 to 50% crop. And this year, as far as our county here, we were looking at a 15 or below percent crop. And most of that Whoa. damage being on the front end of peaches. Oh yeah. And that's, that's us in our state. That's a, that's in the Georgia. That's in the Carolinas. That was most everybody. And as far as early peaches, just within blooming out um, so far ahead of time. But I mean, I think that's also a benefit for us where we're located at, as well as in Georgia, I, I would say as well, because you do have such a wide swath of variety of peaches that do come in at different points in time throughout the year and throughout the summer. I mean, our peach season starts in mid-May and it some years runs through September. So it's not like when you go to the Carolinas, they only grow a certain amount of varieties. Like here, again, we grow 40 to 50, but that's not counting the 20 or 30 other varieties that some other farmer here in the county might be growing as well. So, and I think that's also been beneficial for us where we are located at being, I would say, an ag state as well as being surrounded by ag university. So even Auburn University has an extension office down here in our county. And that's what they're doing every single year. They're putting out different varieties of peaches, apples, um, other fruits and vegetables. Or there have been uh, new varieties that they're testing with different rootstock to see how it's going to take in our climate as well as in our cold off season. And that's the thing to where every year you are having to adapt. Um, with us, where our acreage is at, we have about six wind machines 
in our spot. And so whenever we get those cold temperatures, we're running wind machines to keep that uh, air circulation oh, and yeah. to kind of keep that airflow moving to where frost can't settle. And then if you can't have a wind machine, if you can't afford that, you've got people doing brush fires. They don't want you doing uh, coal fires anymore, like and burning tires in the orchards anymore. Sure. So <laughs> everybody's out there burning brush piles now. Um, and then uh, we've actually done it before. And then even now you see it where some farmers, they have helicopters running. And they're renting uh, pilots out of Mississippi that come in. And again, whether that pilot flies or not, I mean, if that temperature kind of staggers between 32 or 34 or 36 and doesn't quite drop, I mean, that cost of having that pilot there, as well as the cost of fuel, it's already there. I mean, you're not getting right. rid of that cost whatsoever. Um, so that, again, it's something that we have to evaluate every single year. And even with that, I mean, we're having to put new varieties of peaches out every single year just because of damage or uh, root rot, or you're dealing with pests that are uh, weevils that are coming in and tearing up everything. So that's just something that we have to adapt to every year. We have meetings um, with people from Auburn Extension, but also from uh, South Carolina, and then also from Clemson University. They come in and everybody works together and seeing different patterns, different trends. Hey, this is what happened last year with these certain varieties. This is what we're seeing moving forward. Um, they're finding safer trap systems as far as for some of these pests where they're not having to spray different things um, within the orchards. Right. Um, so it's definitely a development thing that happens every single year. So Very cool. Well, this has been a pleasure of a conversation. I got to ask you, though, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Um, of course, you would think it would be peach, but um, my favorite flavor is actually strawberry. So <laughs> I, am not a, I am not a big peach flavored thing person like i will love peaches and i will only eat them during the summertime when we had them and when they are out of season i will not touch a peach but <laughs> i am definitely a strawberry ice cream person all the way that's for sure that's cool and if our listeners want to follow along with what you guys have going on or want to stop on their vacation what's the best way for them to look you up yeah so we have a website at durbanfarmsmarket.com and that's got pretty much all of our info kind of breaking down who we are as a company, who we are as a family and what products and offers that we have here, or you can reach out to us. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as well. Um, and TikTok just at Durban Farms Market. So we would love to have that interaction. I mean, just as much as we get here within the store, we're always open to doing a little bit more on the social media aspect as well. So that's cool. Well, it's a, definitely been a pleasure to have this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me again. We sure do appreciate it. We would love to have y'all come through and see us down here at Durban Farms Market. Well, Lenny, that was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun doing that interview, getting to know him. I'm hoping uh, we can get him to be a future Farm for Fun guest on the podcast. It sounds like their family and operation is top notch for what they've got going on. I love fun Friday interviews like that one, Tanner. Absolutely. Listeners, we'll be back again Monday. We'll get you another market update. We'll have a great conversation then. So don't forget to tune in. But for today, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.